0: Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman, and with me is Ryan Young. And today we have some really big news. Ryan, why don't you tell
1: everybody what happened? Okay, so before that, I had something to talk about. I should have told you I was going to do this before we talked about the main subject.
0: Oh, gosh. Okay.
1: Well, <laughs> okay, so it was just just like to- a teaser. Totally deflate me and tell me what you want to talk about. <laughs> okay. I want to talk about the World Chess Championship. Because OK, something interesting happened that also happened in freestyle Frisbee or is going to happen. Say more. So the in f- chess, classical chess, this is like 90 minute, six hour game. So a really long time there is undisputed best person in the world right now is Magnus Carlsen. And he's won like the last like seven world championships. And it hasn't been that close. And last year he announced his retirement and he wasn't going to compete in the 20, this year's 2023 world championships. And what that does is it allows someone, like for sure someone, there's going to be a new chess world championship this year because of that. And the way it works is you play in. So it's like not even everyone even gets to try to be the world chess champion. There's like, there's only two, normally there's only one slot to do it because you're playing against the current world championship every year. But now there were two slots and it was going to be one of those two. And the tournament just ended. It's like eight days long. It's super long. I maybe mean, it's even longer than it's maybe like 20 days because there's 14 games and they only play one game a day and there's rest days. So that's like kind of how it works. But what the interesting thing is, is in the last like five to seven years or so, it hasn't been very competitive because Magnus just comes in and just like steamrolls whoever is the challenger but this year because there was no magnus carlson it was everyone was like okay the general consensus was this was the most exciting to watch chess world championship because the games were so back and forth and everyone also agreed that this is not the highest level of chess they've ever seen and it was like this interesting thing where it was not the best chess there was so many times the commentators would be like if Magnus Carlsen was playing right now, this would be a guaranteed victory or there was no way he would lose this position. And the game would just spiral out of control and one of the players would have a meltdown. And then it was going back and forth. Like one person would win, the other person would win it. And it was like trading games and it got all the way down to the 14th game and they were still tied. And it went to, 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 like tiebreakers, which is like speed chess, which is like crazy, to determine a world championship. They're like, instead of playing one game that lasts six hours, they played four games that all like it was like if you were to play like 15-second routines in freestyle frisbee to determine the world championship because it was a tie. It was crazy. That, but that's pretty that's
0: pretty sick. So we'll come back to the freestyle analog there that I think you're hinting at. But what is the reason why Magnus
1: Carlson didn't want to keep competing, so this is the or this part is cool because it's the exact same reason you stop competing, which is he is tired of competing at such a high level, and he's also sort of a perfectionist, and he's like, there is so much prep that goes into staying the world championship. There's like months of prep, like eight hours a day for months, and he just didn't want to do that anymore. He's like, I've won enough, and it's time for me to enjoy my life and do other things. Like he's becoming a poker star now.
0: That's that's awesome. So it's funny. We should go back to what it means for freestyle. But I actually am a big reader of The Ringer. And they had a cover story about Magnus Carlsen retiring in this whole situation. And I downloaded it to read. Sounds like a boomer thing to say, but I did that. And I haven't read it yet, and I think it's for the same reason I have never watched the movie Whiplash, which is that I think it's going to be (laughs) so close to home that I can't really, really bear it. So I actually had a big, coincidentally, a big breakthrough on my, my Whiplash block, which is that I finally listened to a podcast about Whiplash, which might be as close as I'm willing to go to watching that movie yet. And the podcast confirmed that that movie is based in part on my real life. So I really want to read about... Magnus Carlsen but I think it's just gonna it's gonna I don't know it's just gonna be like a reflection of myself in the mirror that I'm not sure I'm ready to see yet (laughs) which by the way let me be clear like Magnus Carlsen is so much better at chess than I am at Freestyle Frisbee like don't get me wrong but it's kind of how like whenever people say you can't compare apples and oranges and like yes you absolutely can you're supposed to compare apples and oranges (laughs) so I believe me I understand that Magnus Carlsen is probably like the Serena Williams of chess and it's like a totally different situation. But I mean, just the idea of like winning a lot of titles and deciding you don't want to do it is obviously
1: pretty similar to the situation I'm in right now. Yep. And like, I think what's exciting is next year. So 2024 world championships, you're not going to be competing. So we're going to have the same fight. It's like, there's going to be a new world champion next in 2024, just because you're not there to, to defend
0: Well, I mean, look, I think you care about talking about this. I don't want to sound like just an arrogant jerk. But I pointed this out to you at Virginia this last weekend, which we should also talk about briefly. And you kind of shut me down on this. So this is the first year I didn't compete at Virginia. I guess there's like a couple of years I missed here and there. But like the first time I was at Virginia and I didn't compete. And I think I've won like the last eight or nine times I've competed in Virginia. So I have a pretty big streak there. And I thought it was really interesting and exciting because one there happened to be a pretty big turnout and two, all the best players split up. So there was like five or six teams that all had a pretty good chance of winning the tournament. And I thought that was super exciting. And I wondered how it had been different if I had competed. So one, if I competed, I probably would have played with you and will, which would have been a really strong team and that would have had certain effects and maybe people would have played differently knowing that we were playing. But even if it's not that, if that's like too arrogant to assume, I also wonder if people would pair up differently. Like if you knew that me and you were competing, for instance, and you were a top player, you might be more inclined to try to find another top player to compete with so you'd have a chance of beating us. Whereas if you knew we weren't competing and that everyone else had kind of split up, and that there wasn't like one or two super dominant teams, you might be more willing to branch out and experiment. Like, I don't know, like I I don't want to (laughs) sound so awful about this. I'm sure like most people don't really put that much thought into it, Mm -hmm. but I think like it was, I was just aware of it because I wasn't competing and I was thinking about the competition in a different way. And I was wondering if it was more like what we might see in worlds. So like maybe one other example, which I'm like 99% sure Daniel didn't think about this at all but this would be like what I was thinking some people might do which is so like Daniel went out like second to last or third second to last I think and he went for like the dropless routine because he had seen everything that had happened before and he knew that you and Will were competing next and probably weren't as strong a team as Daniel and Brett Whereas I think if he knew me and you were playing or like pick someone else like Jake and McCarthy were playing, he might have tried to go a little bit bigger and risked a couple more execution errors because he would need to kind of put that diff out there. Now Virginia is kind of weird because it's really oddly judged. (laughs) It's like audience judging. But like that kind of calculus I think would go into it. Because like didn't we think about stuff like that? Like I'm not totally sure. It's kind of tough because we're almost always seated last. So we didn't have to do a lot of calculations about what would come after us. But I don't know, I think, I think it matters if you're competing in the middle and you don't know what's going to happen after, but this is where I don't have nearly as many insights because it really has been a long time and very infrequent that I don't compete
1: near the end of every round. So I do. Well, I do compete in the middle of the round a lot more than you do. And I do play differently based on who's after in the lineup.
0: Yeah, and what's the calculation?
1: It's, do we... Okay, so the first there's like, are we going for the win or are we going for the best result possible? So that's the first decision. But a lot of times it's like, let's say I'm playing with Daniel. Like I played with Daniel last year at the Worlds. And we're like, let's just go big or go home. So... That makes up a lot of the decision-making beforehand. And so we knew you and Graf were going to go out and hit up your things. And we're like, either we're going to go dropless and win or we're going to drop like 50 of them trying to hit all our hardest stuff. And it like didn't matter that we dropped 50 because like we weren't going to win anyway unless we went for all the hardest things.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It's also, I wonder if it just makes it more exciting when there's not dominant teams. I mean, look, this is not fun for me to talk about because it sounds so arrogant. But like, especially in the U.S., a lot of times there aren't that many like top level teams because most of them, most of the top players these days are in Europe. So like there have been Virginia's where me, you and Daniel competed together and that's the top three American players with like a pretty big gap, at least by rankings, before everyone else. So it's it's not quite as fun, but like i remember i think there's been like a growing inequality in this sport cuz i think when we first started like if i think about the like think about the 2013 open pairs division there was like all eight teams could have won the finals pretty easily and all the teams were really bunched up and the eighth seeded team won the division i mean it was pretty crazy and these days it seems more like there's more of a concentration of skill and usually there's really only two or three teams at worlds that are competing for the win. And to be clear, as we talked about before, like in freestyle, there's so much variance that the not best team can win pretty often. I mean, I've said before, I think a lot of my success early on was, benefiting from that luck that there's a lot of variance and the top players just need to drop it a few too many times and they're out so that's totally true like this is not a sport where the best team always wins but with that said there's usually only two or three favorites and then a pretty big drop off these days I think do you agree with that assessment or am I just missing something
1: there's multiple things coming into it but I would I'd agree but for multiple reasons I'm guessing you would say one of
0: the reasons that the judging system changed?
1: Yeah, the judging system really favors the
0: favorite now. So do you think we knew that that would happen when the judging system is being changed? And is that a positive outcome or a negative outcome?
1: I think it's positive in the sense that it's good that people can see that changes in the judging system change, uh, or like changes in the rules change how the judging system works, which is good. The dangerous part is if we leave it like this forever, that's then to become a bad change long term. But if we kept changing it so it did something else on a regular basis, then it's like a good thing.
0: Why would it be a bad change if it was like this forever? And I think at some point we need to have the conversation about, which we've touched on before, but about why it would be maybe better for the sport if the judging system changed radically, pretty regularly, so that different kinds of things are rewarded and different kinds of players could succeed at different times. But is what did you have in mind when you said it would be bad if the you know, current judging system persisted for too long?
1: I think it's like, uh, like getting like working out, you're forcing your body to do adaptions and that's how you grow is by first you like break down the muscle and then it like recovers while you're sleeping and you get stronger the next day. I think growing a sport works in the same way. So if you, change the judging system it's kind of like you're breaking down your muscle everyone has to learn something new to adapt to the new system and those adaptions when they're trying to play to the new system is innovation and it like grows the sport but eventually you're going to stop innovating because the rules aren't changing anymore you just like find the best solution everyone does that and so we're, if you leave it like that for a long time
0: we're going in a little rabbit hole but yeah. i guess that, i guess that's okay but one other question about it is <laughs> it's It seems like you could have lots of changes to the judging system regularly, but still consistently reward the favorites. And again, I'm not saying that's the best thing to do, but but like, am I right about that? I mean, I think you could do it that way or you could not do it that way. You can choose. Because for instance, yeah, I mean, okay, again, like obviously it's, I'm just trying to point out that there's kind of like two different spectrums here. One spectrum would be how much does the judging system favor the favorites versus how much does the judging system have variance versus like what is the judging system rewarding? And I think (laughs) those two spectrums can move independently of each other. So you could change a lot about the judging system while still favoring the favorites or not. Or you could keep the judging system pretty similar, but find ways to make it more varied and not favor the favorites. But I think it's kind of an interesting discussion about whether (laughs) a judging system is better if it favors the favorites. I think, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I'm just going to kind of create a side here. But I think if Freddie Fenner were on the podcast and we should bring him on at some point, he would say something like the judging system should favor the favorites. The point of the world championship, for instance, is for the best teams, the best freestylers to win. But... Another argument would be, well, we don't need to favor the favorites. We're not on ESPN. The point is to have an exciting sport that's fun to watch. And I guess I'm kind of contradicting myself with my ESPN comment. So strike the ESPN comment, but just say (laughs) like, you might say the sport's more exciting and more fun when anyone can have a good day and win. But I mean, it's just like two different flavors. And like, what is the world championship about? Or what is competition about? Which is a conversation we've had a lot in our sport And certainly had a fair amount on this podcast, but it's just something to something to think about. But I think it's cool that I think it sounds like you're pretty open to systems that don't necessarily favor the favorites.
1: Yeah, I think change is good. That's that's just my overarching mentality.
0: But I guess just to really force you to answer this, if you were allowed to change it every year, but you had to decide how much to favor the favorites, would you consistently favor the favorites or
1: would you try to change that too? I would change that too. So some years it would be a lot, sometimes it would be a little, sometimes it would be in the middle. Yeah,
0: pretty interesting. It's cool to think though that the sport's more exciting when there's more teams that are in contention. I definitely think there's something cool mm-hmm. about that. Like the NBA, and I'll point out that there's a three-point game with four points in second, 4.6 seconds left happening in the playoffs right now. But the NBA <laughs> right now is wide open. There's so many teams that could potentially win the whole thing and there's not really a heavy favorite and it's made it really exciting to watch but for a long time there was really just you know two teams the warriors and whoever lebron played for that were competing for the titles and at least for me that was a lot more boring because i could basically skip the entire nba season and most of the playoffs and just wait for the inevitable finals so i can imagine that in freestyle like it's not just that I'm not competing anymore and a lot of top players like Matt and Jake and Randy aren't competing anymore. But I also think there is maybe a little bit more movement where the top players are playing with a wider range of skill sets rather than all the top players kind of
1: aggregating and playing with each other. I guess, yeah, multiple things. I know. What would you say you would rather watch a high school basketball game between two, like, let's say they're two elite high school teams but they're similarly skilled play each other or like that one case in the NBA where there's like one dominant team that just like goes through the whole season and wins. But it's like they're playing the best basketball you've ever seen.
0: Well, I think you kind of hit on two different aspects though. So I do think I almost always, if not always want to watch similarly skilled teams compete. But the level is a different question. Like I would generally rather watch top basketball in the nba than high school basketball and maybe i'd even favor slightly mismatched teams in the nba over more closely aligned teams in high school so like i think of those as two different questions but it's also kind of sports dependent for me like i'd rather watch bad baseball players play because i think it's way more exciting when there's mistakes and it's not just (laughs) perfect baseball whereas i think watching bad basketball i find rather unpleasant and kind of to be fair and to cut against a little bit of my at least implicit admiration for having more parody in freestyle, I strongly prefer watching top freestyle. I really struggle, I think, like a lot of us watching not so good freestyle. (laughs) And we all do it. I do it all the time. Like I think you mentioned that I'm kind of a perfectionist. I agree. It makes being a freestyler rather hard (laughs) because there's just no way to be perfect in (laughs) freestyle. And I'm so far from perfect. I mean, there's just so many days, like even this even like a couple of days ago and we were jamming, I was, I came, I did the airport to jam situation again and I just played so bad and it was one of the rare times, like really everything was perfect, like the temperature was perfect, the wind was really good, I was playing with Will and Ray, like everything was lined up to have a great day and I was just so bad and I just thought, oh man, <laughs> like, I just can't always play well and it just it's just part of being a freestyler I guess. Anyways, anything else on Magnus Carlsen? It sounds like I should have been, you gotta tell me when exciting world championships are happening. I had no idea, even though I knew about this Magnus Carlsen article, I had no idea that it, it just ended today and I missed all this action.
1: I see, I didn't watch any of it live, I just watched the recaps, so I can send you some recaps that were good. Yeah, I
0: need to go check out Five Thirty Eight and see what kind of coverage they have on it. So yeah. anyways, that's cool. Yeah, I probably sound really arrogant in this podcast, but it just happens sometimes. So let's go then to our super exciting news. Are we ready to talk about that? Yes, yes. We made everyone wait 20-odd
1: minutes to hear (laughs) about it. So what happened just the last couple weeks? Yep, so I went out to North Carolina and I bought a house. It's nine minutes away from James's house by car, 17 minutes by bike. It's beautiful in the countryside and... I'm preparing it for Frisbee guests right now.
0: That's a generous nine-minute assessment. I clock it in at just a hair over 10. You must drive a little bit faster than me. I agree that it is a beautiful house. I cannot believe you actually bought one. We were in a, for any of the Seinfeld fans out there, hashtag 90s, there was a recurring theme in that show with the character George Costanza where every time he'd find a perfect woman in his life. He'd find some ridiculously small thing about her (laughs) that he didn't like so that he wouldn't have to commit to a relationship. So it'd be some perfect, smart, interesting, wonderful woman. And he'd be like, yeah, but you know, she's got this freckle on her neck and I just can't deal with it. That was what it was like shopping for houses with you. I would just show you perfect house after perfect house. And my favorite was... You know, I showed you a bunch of houses that had yards and you kept saying, no, I don't want to take care of that. I don't want to take care of that. And then I found you this beautiful house that was on like a quarter acre and you're like, there's not enough land in this house. I was like, it's got to be like between 0.47 and 0.53 acres for you to find it acceptable. So I was actually shocked when you pulled the trigger and finally picked up this house. Now, there's still a few I's to dot and T's to cross, but... It does seem like this is going to happen.
1: Yep. Like when I shop for big things, I do it emotionless. You were so, every opportunity you sent me, you're like, my life depends on this decision. I was like, eh, there'll be another one. It's like, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Like I had no, no worries about passing up on like almost good opportunities. Honestly, I really envy
0: you because I think about when you take economics in school and first you learn about traditional economics and it's all about the rational actor and how humans make rational decisions based on their interests, you know, benefits and costs and whatnot. But then as you move further, you realize that none of that actually works because humans are full of emotions and you have to learn behavioral economics that tries to factor in human emotions into decision making. But what we've discovered in this process is that behavioral economics doesn't apply to you, only traditional economics, because you are the only human actor in the world that's capable of purely rational thought. And I'm envious of it. I cannot believe you're able to do it. But yes, even though this wasn't my house, I was deeply attached to all the houses that we looked at, but you were able to just brush them all off and and not worry about any kind of attachment whatsoever. I don't know how you do it. (laughs)
1: It's like a video game. I don't know. You cared a lot more about how the house looked than I did. That's like, I think people look for certain things and I look for very different things for this house than I did in my current house. You say I care about how it looked as if I
0: was like, you know, the walls are the wrong shade of beige or something. It's more
1: like... You've always were (laughs) like, this house is beautiful. I'm like, that is a detriment. That means other people will think it's beautiful. I need a house you think is Calling a house beautiful
0: is like calling a child beautiful. It's just something you say when you're being (laughs) positive about something that you're communicating about with somebody. But... I, I don't know. I don't understand you even to this day, despite how long we spent together. But there were just sometimes we were... Like, for instance, there was a house we were looking at that I won't say how much it was priced at because I don't think it'll translate to listeners who live in other countries and whatnot. But let's just say this was on the cheapest side of cheap for a house. And it was basically one step away from imminent domain demolition like a truly a d- almost dangerous situation this house was so run down and none of that bothered you at all so when i was saying this house doesn't look good <laughs> it wasn't simply <laughs> that i didn't like the wallpaper in the bathroom <laughs> it was more like i think this is a very bad house that you don't want to live in but who knows you're just you're different from everybody else but we got most of what you wanted which is pretty cool you're pretty close to me you're about the same distance as i am from duke or we're going to be freestyle a lot i am frankly elated to have some more help recruiting new freestylers i definitely need another person who can step in now that i'm working more to get in and and teach people how to play and i also think you and i always have a lot of fun hanging out and It'd be cool to have one of my best friends living living nearby. Yep, I'm excited. How much more freestyle uh, do you think you'll do once you live here?
1: I think I will try and jam as little as possible, but I'll try and teach as much as I can. That's kind of how I'll do it. Did yeah, I? Told I, you, I didn't great. even tell you about the the last like session I had with Will. It was incredible. Oh, I've never I, seen. Someone I saw the burn. Fru-
0: fruits of that session, but continue.
1: Okay. Yeah. I've never seen someone learn so quickly before. <laughs> like, and it was so focused, the practice that I don't know. I was like wondering what people walking by were thinking because it was very weird if you were to witness it from outside. So, the first big difference is we use, I did clicker training, which is what you use to train dogs primarily. But we've talked about this on the podcast before. That's been shown to be really effective for humans as well because it takes the emotion out of. Uh, teaching and learning especially the learning part and it allows the student to just like think about learning instead of thinking about expectations about learning which is huge but every once in a while I would glance up and someone would be walking by within like clicker range and they would just I'd just be there like clicking and Will would be just adjusting over and over again and it was just like when you train okay well Will is like much better than a dog right so I'm just gonna even though I'm going to compare him to a dog like several times in this conversation, he's just like a different person. So <laughs> you when, do you're you, training a, <laughs> when you're training a dog, you have to break down the steps into very small pieces. And it's the same thing with humans too, when you teach it and you do it so you can click it often is another piece that uh, makes it more effective. So it's not like, we try this like long thing and I click it like once every 30 seconds and someone hears like a click every 30 seconds. No, it's like a person will walk by like 15 seconds (laughs) walk by like on the sidewalk and they'll hear me click it like five times. And then it's just like, I wonder what that person thinks we're doing. Cause it's not how I've seen anyone interact at a park or in like a teaching space before, but it's so like, there was, we did a test run at Virginia. Will and I. I was like, let's just try clicker training and see if it works. And we did it. Will made some adjustments I looked really good. And afterwards he told me the story about what he was feeling. And he was like, when I didn't hear a click, I would experiment until I heard a click again. And then when I heard the click, I would just try and repeat that again. And that's so valuable. And I don't know why we don't why aren't all professional athletes being clicker trained? Like it would seem so useful for like ice skaters or anything like that. That's a good question. And
0: I think it's a great question for really high levels, but I think or suspect or wonder whether clicker training is always best at the low level for one reason and one reason alone, which is something I feel like I've had to explain a lot when defending some of my teaching methods in freestyle but when you're teaching someone how to freestyle at the beginning, your goal is not necessarily to teach them as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And that sounds really counterintuitive, but here's what I mean by that. A- far above and beyond the goal of teaching them as quickly as possible is keeping them interested, which means keeping them having fun. So to make the most obvious example... If you walked up and said, hey, that's cool, can I try it? And I pulled out my clicker and started clicker <laughs> training you, you would walk yeah. away pretty quickly and never come back. So I do think there's an element of that, that not everyone's ready for clicker training. I think that kind of goes back to my kind of defense of teaching people clock at the beginning, which caused a lot of uproar. It's it, just this idea that I don't need to teach you everything as quickly as possible all at the beginning. There's a process, it's very social, it's very emotional, to go back to our house conversation (laughs) to to keep you involved. And then when you're ready, like Will, we can start maximizing efficiency. But efficiency is not for everybody. And even for high level players in the sport, their concern isn't always gonna be efficiency. They might have other values that determine how they learn how to play. So there's something worth keeping in mind. But I do think especially for people who can handle it, it's really valuable. And two, it's really valuable for certain kinds of things. And like you said, it's especially valuable for the trying to break things down into small steps. So I I think we've explained this a little bit before, but just to kind of follow up on what you just said to make clear to everybody what you mean when you say, you know, in 15 seconds, you're gonna click it five times. So I'll use an example of an actual dog, my dog, Radley. When I taught Radley how to lie down, we used a clicker and It's kind of hard to figure, it's kind of hard to convince a dog to lie down. (laughs) So, like, you have a treat that you want to give the dog, and the dog's just going to jump on your leg until you give him the treat. So, how do you convince him to lie down? Well, the clicker helps because one, you can kind of divorce feeding the treat to the dog from doing something right. So, first you click it when you give the dog a treat. So, the dog knows that clicks mean good things. So, you teach something that a human knows intuitively. Tail dog. If I click it, you did the right thing, but then you click it literally every time they do something closer to what you want them to do. So with Bradley, like he's just standing there and then like just from his own random movements at one point, he lowers his head a little bit, click. Lowering your head is a little bit closer to lying down. So then he's like, Oh, what's this about? And he starts lowering his head and every time he lowers his head, I click. Then you know, I get him to sit, I click. Then I wait for him to lower his head. He lowers his head to click again. Now he knows, okay, my back legs are down, my head's lowered. So you can see how you can progress through this to get closer and closer. So it gets, I think in freestyle, it's really helpful for something like form. So I think you did clicker training with Will with a guidance, maybe not, but that's like a great example because like, if you were clicker training me, I would hit the guidance nine times out of 10. But what really matters to me is not that I'm catching the guidance. It's You know, is my first step good? Is my run up good? And you could clicker train me on those little pieces of the guidance much more effectively with a clicker than some other method, because every other method requires a lot more time to convey positive or negative. And that time is muddying my brain's connection between what was good and what was bad. So if every time I guide us, you say, good job, my brain didn't get that feedback right after the thing I did correctly that I need to work on.
1: Yep. I know, but there was I this, know go okay. ahead, go ahead. Okay, actually I have two things. The first one I want to ask, did you notice any improvement in Will after that session?
0: Okay, so I was about to say something about that. So we had at least one or two jams after you did the clicker session. And I know <laughs> you worked on the scoop brush and I think finesse brushes. And I noticed because he was trying scoop brushes and finesse brushes, but I think the problem that will was having which is a problem a lot of us have when we learn something in the lab and try to bring it out in the gym (laughs) is he was not in lab conditions and was having trouble setting up the situation in which finesse and scoop brushes were appropriate so there were several times where he went for a brush and it should have been like a power brush or like a Big kick or something and you just try to do this little like finesse scoop rush and I laugh every time (laughs) nope (laughs) and I do think there's something that happens a lot when you're learning how to freestyle where there's something that you're working on that has a really specific circumstance that doesn't necessarily come up a lot and those moves are really tricky to learn because you learn them in the lab and then when you bring them out you don't get to practice them in the real world very much and the scoop brush is a little bit like that because you really got to go on a lot of brushing runs for them to be applicable. And I don't know, you think about this, I'm kind of thinking out loud. I feel like a lot of times when a scoop brush comes up, it's because things didn't necessarily go as planned. And so yeah, it's you're using the scoop brush to do a correction. So it's kind of tricky to manufacture the situation that requires the scoop brush because you're trying to do something that you're normally not doing so that's it's yeah i mean just in general it's kind of like practicing bail catches like it's not there's ways to do it and there's ways to kind of manufacture the need for a bail but it's just a little bit trickier than doing something that's really traditional and the other example to point out that i feel like i always had a problem with is i learned how to do all these things out of these really specific angled throws that almost never come up <laughs> in freestyle and like okay well that unless it's putting it into a routine that move is not really going to
1: happen. Yeah. Was there anything else? I know, I wonder if you noticed the other thing we practiced. I do think his guidance
0: looked better. Like, it had looked really good for a while, and then he kind of lost it for a bit, which I think is partially due to an injury. But it seemed like he was getting the form again. So it's possible you worked on the guidance. He's also been no. working okay I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do three more guesses if I have okay. three. He's also been doing the I don't think this is it because I don't think you would have been spending your time teaching in this, but he's made a lot of progress on the clock Mac backhand throw. He wow. okay. has been working is it there's what two related possibilities are the roll set and the soul brush. And now
1: I'm out of ideas. No, those are all good guesses, though. It was we worked a lot on the tip back. So will receiving the tip back.
0: Oh, you know, I I don't know if I noticed. I didn't notice it. I know I didn't notice it because otherwise I would have guessed that. But now that you say that, I noticed him doing it a lot more. And it, it was kind of interesting because I don't think I would have noticed it because all of his tip backs were fine. The thing was that he was doing them like and he usually doesn't do them. Which I noticed a lot because tip backs are one of my favorite things. I do them all the time and I almost never see people do them. Almost never is a little strong. But like when I'm not jamming with you, I don't get a lot of tip backs or Daniel's really good at tip backs too. And I noticed he was doing them and it was kind of exciting for me because I love getting tip backs because that's like the best time to catch it. So yeah, I did notice that. And he was crushing those. So he made a lot of progress on that for
1: sure. Yeah, what
0: was yeah. I gonna say? that's pretty cool though. <laughs> I, I like the idea of Will doing some clicker training. I think it'll be good for him he's like the exact kind of person where i think clicker training is really well suited to him
1: Yep, yeah, it requires self-motivation that's the downside so yeah in the beginning it's not the way to go because people aren't motivated in the beginning usually
0: but i should yeah. also add i know we said this before but just for anyone this is the first episode i didn't remember this from before one of the other benefits of clicker training supposedly is that it takes emotions out of the equation, which again, I just sort of said that sometimes the emotions are good because you need those emotions to keep them going back. But if we're talking pure efficiency, apparently humans learn a lot better when emotions don't factor into it. And that sounds counterintuitive. Maybe the sciences evolve, but this is what I remember learning in psychology and learning when we learned about clicker training. But there's something about even the words like yes and no have an emotional connotation. So like if people are trying something to say yes, yes, no, no even that can kind of throw them off. But when it's truly this objective measure, it's something that lets the brain focus on the learning part and not get distracted by the emotion part. And it's funny, I'll throw this back to the movie Whiplash, as far as I understand. (laughs) Whiplash is all about teaching with, through extreme emotions, which is kind of what my experience was when I was a musician. So I can relate to the fact that you can definitely overdo it on using positive and negative emotions to motivate people to learn like specific skills.
1: Okay. Oh, I was going to add one anecdotal piece. So going back to when you said giving feedback through yes and no's, mm-hmm. it was really valuable to have no feedback, which is odd. So like when I would not click, it would signal will to think, which I don't think saying no doesn't trigger a person to think it, they're like, what did I do wrong? But more, it's like, what was missing, which is what the no click is really good at. But that's that just makes, all. That's just my intuition.
0: That makes sense to me intuitively because I do think maybe this is emotions getting into the mix. But there's almost a certain awkwardness when it's silence. So you're searching for a way to get that click and searching is a good word. Like you want to be searching. Searching is good when you're trying to learn things. Um but on the subject of learning, I did something today that I haven't done in a painfully long time. But <laughs> I actually practiced freestyle <laughs> and it was really fun.
1: Did you make a study tape? Was no, it or just for you? It
0: was just practice. <laughs> I worked I'm trying to think of everything I worked on. So first I worked on my basic foot taps. So Chesco, quick aside, by the way, Chesco and Char crushed at Virginia State's. They crushed. (laughs) It was super exciting. Just amazing. And I had some incredible jams with Chesco over the weekend. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast before or not, but I think I have. But many, many years ago, Jam Britannia, there were trading cards. And it was, I think, one of the first times I ever met Chesco. And at the end of that tournament, I traded everyone for all their Chesco cards So I think I have virtually every Chesko card in existence because I was such a big fan of him. But back then he was super raw and now all that rawness has come to fruition and he's just absolutely insane. And his skills as a jammer have gotten so much better. Like he takes all the crazy stuff he does and finds ways of putting them into consecutive mob op combos that really work. So big shout out to Chesko. I'm sure we'll talk about him a lot in the future. Because he's one of the biggest stars in the sport right now. But, anyways, I was having some great jams with Chesco and he was doing all this crazy stuff. And I was asking him for some tips on some of the stuff he does. And you know, now that I praise Chesco, I will throw a little bit of shade at him, which is Chesco was jokingly, but kind of like half truth jokingly. Being a little bit hesitant to share all of his secrets with me. But despite that hesitance, I feel like he gave me a pretty good rundown of some things I could do better. And I was really grateful that he was willing to do that. So anyways, I started out practicing my foot taps. And I I had, this is a great freestyle learning horror story. But I had convinced myself a couple of years ago that I needed to use a certain technique to foot tap and it would make me better. And now two years later, I've confirmed that, that it's not the best technique to use. <laughs> and that is not two <laughs> years wasted, but two years that I could have used a lot more efficiently. Two years is probably undersigned. It's probably more like five years. But Chesco showed me a slightly different technique that involves a little bit more of a bent knee. And I have to say it made a big difference today. It's still a long road on foot taps. Every time I think I got it, I really don't. It's like Shaquille O'Neal and free throws or something. Like I'm sure there was times he thought he could do it, but it just left him. So not confident it will stay. Then I worked on the cray leg trap where you kind of like set it in front of you, do a spin and catch it kind of at your feet. I got, I made a lot of progress on that. It was kind of a tricky one to practice because it hurts a little bit depending on, where you catch it so if you catch it a little bit too high up on your legs if you got little skinny chicken legs like I do the edge (laughs) of the disc can hurt a little bit (laughs) but uh I made some progress at figuring out how to catch it without hurting myself and then I spent some time on my pirouette one-legged spins this is where I this is the opposite of the foot tap story Edo inspired me to start working on this a couple months ago and I Started doing it, I learned it completely wrong, but luckily I learned it wrong quickly. (laughs) And when I went to Frisbee Red, I was like, Nope, that's not right. Here's what you need to do. And so I finally got around to making those adjustments today. And it was a classic, it's now easier to do and way better, which is always the best because sometimes it's like you're doing it wrong, and the way you're supposed to do it is 10 times harder, and you're like, Oh no. And then other times, (laughs) like this time, it's you're doing it wrong. And the other way is the way you should do it is much easier and it makes it look much better. So that was great. And I'll throw praise on Edo for being one of the most willing teachers in the sport. It's like one thing we haven't really talked about much that there's not a lot to say on it. But I do think we should make as much an effort as we can in our sport to share our knowledge and not be too secretive and selfish about it. So I know you've got your super hand moves that you want to keep to yourself, but do the world and the sport a favor by sharing the trick to the trick because it's shocking how often in freestyle there's some little thing that you can do that makes something way easier. And a lot of times those things take years to figure out. And so if you can just pass that information along, really can speed up someone's trajectory, which I know some of us don't want that, but I think a rising tide lifts all boats and the sport will be in a much better place if we share that information.
1: One of the things I want to build when I move to North Carolina is I think we were talking about this, but the word is run book. I want to build the freestyle run book, which is a run book. in like a technical term is like this thing. There's like a problem goes wrong, and there's this engineer that doesn't know what the system does or anything. So all they do is they're on it's their job to fix it, but they don't know how it works. They open up the run book and it starts with the instructions and you're like, what is the problem? And you figure out the problem from all these like prompts. And then under that, once you find the problem in the run book, it has all these different solutions that are like, if this is happening, then do this. If this other thing's happening, do this and a bunch of steps. But creating like the freestyle instruction manual that's set up like a run book that's what I want to build it's like if your guidance is is doing this then do this and then when it changes do this
0: yeah I really you know I was making the spin factory tutorials for a while and I'd really like to get back to it it's just so time consuming and I think part of it is I really need to make every video twice because you make the video And you learn so much about what you're actually doing when you make the video. And then you watch the video and realize you didn't explain it very well. And there's five more things you thought of to explain it better. And so it must probably gonna be a retirement project, but I would love to make more. And I don't know, I probably need your help with that. It'd be really nice to have you film and we could go back and forth of who's teaching. And I think some of it is have they get over that it's going to be super repetitive, probably like this podcast to some degree, but it's like every catch summing up the same, like three tips, like pivot, like use your feet, things like that. But it is super valuable because I think you and I got a lot more help than players did in their 80s in terms of having mentors and YouTube videos. But the next generation should have 10 times more than we had because there's so much more out there. And I think more than ever before, we're connected and people are willing to share. Like I know there's so many things that took me years and years to figure out that I just dispense like a Pez machine every day in the Duke field. (laughs) So hopefully that speeds up people's trajectories. Although there is a thing that happens every now and then that I always kind of laugh out and feel bad about is when someone asks me how to do something, I'm like, there's no trick to that. (laughs) Like that's, (laughs) that's just, that's just time. <laughs> there's not, there's, uh, yeah. I don't have a lot of great examples that come top, top to the top full of mind. contact role. I mean, kind of, I was thinking that in my head, but like, there's definitely like some tips I have for that. But it's usually like, here are the 10 tips, but come back in two years when it works for you. But oh, it's like, like how to catch and your and
1: scarecrow. That's one. That's just time. <laughs> like, your I mean, hand will figure some degree, it out. To degree,
0: it's like, even the th- backhand throw and mm-hmm. like, one reason why I think that's true is that there's like 10 different techniques that all seem to work at least, not maybe, if not equally well, close to equally well. So there's not like an obvious technique that if you just do all these things, it's gonna you're gonna throw well. It's more like do all these things and work on it forever. And the throw is also a good example because you probably literally need to build the muscles to be able to throw it that mm-hmm. strong. It was kind of so <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I thought it's. It's going to be so short, but I feel like we're coming to a run. I'm a little low energy today, but I'm just going to keep running with this. So I started a new job and we had an attorney, a treat in Atlanta this weekend. And so everyone learned that I have this weird frisbee sport. And at some point I was at this like bar with a couple older partners and then one like kind of partner a little bit closer to my age. And one of them was a big ultimate player from back in the day and had at least a fair amount of exposure to freestyle and overall and other sporting events and knew a couple of people that we know. And anyway, so I found myself having this long discourse on freestyle. And normally when that happens, I'm a little bit circumspect. I don't really like talking about freestyle in my professional context too much because I don't want it to be a distraction. And it's, there's obviously a pretty big divide between being a lawyer and being a freestyler, I kind of like to respect that divide. But I think because this partner was there who knew a lot more about freestyle, I was a lot more open about it. And we had just played pickleball for a couple hours. Shout out Randy Sylvie. Dream on played while I was learning how to play pickleball, which I thought was <laughs> a sign from Randy Sylvie. So anyways, I was talking a little more openly and they were asking all these like really interesting, specific questions about freestyle. And they were, were asking about throws and how to throw Spin and I was kind of describing the different throws and describing how, you know, a lot of the best players have great throws, but not necessarily elite throws. Like there's kind of a, it's almost like golf where the best drivers aren't necessarily the best golfers. It's just some people have it in them to have crazy amounts of power. But then I also talked about how, like, some throws to throw them with spin is almost like too dangerous to do regularly. (laughs) Like I think (laughs) people who throw the helicopter can only do so many every day because it's literally dangerous to do it. Or I talked about how at least in my experience, if you do a flick with spin, not a Mac, not a Mac flick, but just like kind of how Larry does it, where you just try to like rip spin with a flick. I can only do that two or three times a day, or I will rip up the ligaments in my fingers. It's just... I don't think my fingers can withstand the force of putting a lot of spin on the disc in that way. But, anyways, I was just having a real fun time kind of theorizing freestyle with these lay people who are super smart but know nothing about freestyle. And because they were lay people and it was a long conversation, they asked me a lot of questions on topics that I never thought of. But spin is what they were most obsessed with. They were really interested in how. The Z meter doesn't go above 995 and <laughs> how we have no idea what the most someone has ever thrown. It was pretty, it was pretty interesting.
1: When I think about that, it's like we're living in the medieval, like stone age. We can't even measure a top end throws. It's like, well, we, it?
0: <laughs> we should have a whole podcast on this. We really are in the middle age as a freestyle in general. There's no analytics. We have no information on anything. You have no idea what your scores you get for certain kinds of moves. Really. We could probably do this now, but it would be a big, big lift. We have no idea what the right techniques are for lots of different moves. I mean, even with me and you or me and Daniel, like half the time one of us is teaching someone something, the other one walks up and goes, no, 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 no. (laughs) It's (laughs) The exact opposite of that. So no one has any idea what they're doing out here. You're just, we don't know. Although you and me agree more, this is what we get criticized for, but I'm often surprised that when I say something that I think is true to a new player and you say that's right, and I'm surprised and happy that another person independently came to the same conclusion that I did because it's so often that I'm, I get to the point where I think this is the right way to do it or at least one of the right ways to do it. But I really have no idea because I've never talked to anyone else about it, which is an underappreciated aspect of the sport because almost nothing else people do in their lives has this aspect. Like if you play any other major sport, there is a plethora of literature about how to do things the right way or right ways to be clear a lot of times there are multiple right ways but there's kind of right ways to do things but in freestyle we have none of that and half the things people (laughs) tell you to do are probably wrong and i will also say putting back on the arrogant hat we i think as like a psych gag i need to buy a hat that says arrogant hat and i just put it on when i say things like this but the people whose advice i hear the most are you and Daniel and you guys give fantastic advice, but I often hear other people give advice that are not as good at freestyle as you, and it's almost always wrong. So (laughs) I I just, and part of why I'm aware of this is because I get reports from Will and Ray and whatnot of what they hear when they go to tournaments. And half the time we have a big jam or a bunch of guests or go to a tournament, I have to spend the whole next week erasing all the brainwashing that happened <laughs> and, and making sure they're doing things the right way and, and a lot of times they'll come up to me and be like i think this is wrong but so and so so many people and i'm like no don't do that so take other people's advice but choose choose whose advice you take carefully because sometimes people don't know how to do it yeah. i don't know I, I at least try to acknowledge when I'm not the best person to give advice. So, for instance, when people ask me about throws, I'm like, and I'm not sure I'm the best person to give it advice, but here's how I do it.
1: Yeah. That's what the run book's for it's the baseline. And when Chesco comes in, it's like, this is not the right way to foot tap. We like swap it out for the Chesco run books.
0: Well, to even drive this point home further, when I asked Chesco about the foot taps, he, and I don't think he was being falsely humble, said, I'm not sure how to do it. He's like, I I don't (laughs) think I'm the best foot tapper. And he, she's just like, this is what works for me. But, you know, I can't do it 40 times in a row. Like other people seem to be able to do. So even Chesko, who I think of as one of the best foot tappers in the world, expressed some doubt about whether he had the right technique or not. So that's, that tells you all you need to know. It's also kind of about how humbly freestyle can be. Yep.
1: Well, once I retire and we start getting stats in our sport, then we'll know who the first, who the best foot tapper is.
0: One day I'll talk about my
1: secret stat sheet
0: that I made years ago. Okay, but it's I'm getting pretty close course.
1: to getting all the all the results from freestyle history into one place, and then we can search it for for things. I'm, I'm excited you a about preview. that. Yeah, yeah,
0: you keep giving right. me very complimentary previews where you tell me how great I am at competitive freestyle and it lifts me up for a couple hours before I forget about it and go back to real life.
1: <laughs> yeah. But soon within this year, <laughs> I don't
0: know.
1: like side projects have a long timeline.
0: One last detail from this work conference, someone came up to me and they were like, so when you go to a frisbee event, are you like a legend? It was like, Going to a frisbee event is going. It's like going to this work conference. It's like every. <laughs> it's like so few people, and everyone knows everybody. And when everybody knows everybody, you can't really be a legend. You're just another person at the same event. I don't know. It's kind of like a funny thing to think about. <laughs> Do you it's think like, so? You, I think people
1: talk to you like you're a legend. I don't think you get to be a legend
0: until you're dead, or okay, what's the
1: word rock star?
0: Or it's been like a really long time. I don't know. But like a rock star, you don't know. Like, I don't know. Even when I was younger, Matt Gothier was my favorite player, and I thought he was the best player in the world. But he was accessible, so that made him not feel like a rock star or a legend. It just was like, this is Matt, and he's the best at this.
1: I see. So rock. I always thought rock stars could be accessible. I didn't know that was a...
0: I don't know. I guess my friend Max Frost, he's a rock star, and he's yeah. accessible. yeah so it depends on who you know yep anyways
1: we've gone through a lot of rabbit holes today. do we do okay today ryan i hope so i'm gonna listen back to this one because it's just like us rambling but i'm i'm my intuition is people like hearing us ramble i mean you gotta have some duds
0: every now and then you know they can't all be strikes <laughs> yep all right is that it are we done then put i a, think we're done we're we're put this one approaching an hour yeah Okay, we did it. All right, well, I'm going to go watch at least a little bit of Phoenix, Denver. Go Nuggets before bedtime. But with that, thank you for listening. This is Clocker Counter. Check us out at all the right places and we'll talk to you next week.